Welcome to the Yes to Entrepreneurship podcast. So real quick, before I jump into the conversation with this week's guest, I just want to let you know what this show is about. Really, this show is just about all the conversations we, entrepreneurs, those of us who are the why notters, have around entrepreneurship. It's the conversation that you don't typically hear because you just see those fun posts on Instagram and Facebook where we're hanging out on yachts or we're making a ton of money and driving these fancy cars when reality is that's not real life. Real life is trying to figure out how you're going to pay bills, trying to figure out if you're going to make rent this month, trying to figure out if that new client really is going to help move you forward or if they're really going to bring you down. Really anything goes in these conversations and you, the listener, gets to eavesdrop in on these conversations that I'm having with fellow entrepreneurs. So grab your cup of coffee, grab your water, grab your tea, whatever it is that you enjoy, and a pen and paper because you're about to take some notes. Also, be sure to share this out. Oh, here comes my guest. Talk to you soon. Hey, Elizabeth, over here. Hi, Ed. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad we get to sit down and just have a conversation because it was awesome to meet you in our workshop a few weeks ago around how entrepreneurs should think and how the brain works and for me that was amazing three hours because it was totally a different topic than I would really sit down and learn you know it's there was a lot of useful information in there the what the big takeaway I got, came back with and have been using is the gap between where we are and where we want to be and how the brain decides to fill that gap and create the bridge between the two Yes. That's useful for me. I'm really glad that he spent so much time on that. And that that was the thing too for me is like understanding more how the brain works and having that that science behind it because for me I needed that for it. Um, and what was awesome is that we got to meet. <laughs> that was that was the cool part and I know I remember you sitting behind me and you you started talking about something that just sparked for me. Do you remember what that was? I do, I do. The topic was um, how we perceive opportunities. And the teacher had just given us a break and I had gone up to him. And by the way, this was Stephen Campbell and he was giving the course through SCORE in Sonoma County. Yes. And it was super helpful, it was about how entrepreneurs think. I have had the privilege of knowing one of the best known entrepreneurs of our time, Steve Jobs. And so when we um, had the break, I was telling our teacher about an incident that happened in my life with regard to not recognizing an opportunity. And here's what it was. I grew up in Silicon Valley. At the time, it was all orchards. It's now all tech companies. But uh, the reason we moved there was because my father was an IBM executive. And his story is kind of fascinating, but I'll tell you that later. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I had gone to Reed College for the first part of my undergraduate studies, and that's where I met Steve Jobs. Wow. And Steve was um, working in his garage that summer on a project that none of us really could see the potential for at the time, but we thought, okay, cool, we'll help. Well, that was the start of Apple Computer. and. What happened was Steve would come over to our family home periodically, weekends usually, because I would make a big meal for everybody at that time. And um, my dad and Steve shared an interest in modern jazz, starting from the 30s and going into the 40s. And so they would listen to records together, and they would also talk because they both understood high technology. And my dad was really curious. He wondered what I was doing during the day, going over to the garage and puttering around. My father had taught me to solder, and he knew that I was doing something with computer chips. And uh, he, he was asking Steve, what are you doing? And Steve said, well, Mr. Holmes, we are making small computers for average people to be able to use. Oh and this was a really radical concept in 1976 because if you went to Radio Shack, you could get components for radios and things like that. 
but small computers, nobody really was thinking in those terms. IBM had huge, big, cumbersome computers that took up entire rooms. And so the idea that the average person might be able to do something like this was very radical. My father's role at IBM at that point in his career was market research. So he was looking at new products to see what might be something that IBM would want to develop. And so when Steve was telling him about this, he just, he would get this look on his face and he would give him this sober little talk and he would say, Steve, I don't want you to be disappointed. It's unlikely that you're going to have much of a market for this product. No kidding. Yeah. And um, I think the reason my dad thought that way was because his only orientation to it was you had to know how to program to use a computer. You had to be able to write in Fortran and do punch cards and have yes. this very elaborate training as an engineer to be able to use a computer. That makes sense. But Steve's vision was always different and much, you know, more far-reaching and that was the beginning of um, user-friendly. Yes. Oh my gosh. And. I mean, it's so fascinating. And when you started to just briefly touch on that during the workshop, that's what like sparked my mind because it was like, hey, I used to work at Apple. I love Apple products. And then to know this history is just fascinating because I love history, especially when it ties in just like that. And now that you you started there and, and you're now where you're at, does that just blow your mind? That It does blow my mind. It does blow my mind. We had a modem in our home in the 60s. So I was around high tech from an early age. And the difference was it was not a computer connected to a telephone. It was a computer connected by some other mechanism, you know, to um, an IBM Selectric that would rapidly print out whatever the communication was. Oh, wow. So it wasn't even a monitor. Jeez. So when I started seeing Steve come out of the garage and plug this little board into the family television set to be able to see things, that was really new for me. Now, I knew he'd been working for a company called Atari and making some video games. Yep. So that was my orientation to what he was doing. I thought he was making um, bas- basically toys, things, for, you know, video games for yeah. people to play. We're so used to video games now that we don't realize how different that was way back when, when they, were, when they first came out. I mean, I think the first game was Pong, right. which was a very simple sort of ping pong game. Yep. And anyway, um, my orientation to it was my dad was making refrigerators and Steve was making toasters. They're making appliances. I'm really not that interested in this. And as it turned out, um, Steve rapidly booted me out of that garage, too, and put me at his dining room table doing his bookkeeping. No kidding. Yeah, because what happened was I had learned to solder in jewelry class, and I was used to very fine work, which was perfect for someone making computer boards. but. I hadn't done it for a very long time. Okay. So I slopped some flux from the solder onto the motherboard. And when he saw it, he said, ooh, we don't have a, any parts to spare. I'm going to need to take you off of this and put you on something else. And I said, okay, whatever you need. And so I did his bookkeeping for the first year when they were first starting Apple Computer. And that's what led to my career in accounting. Okay. Yeah, that's how I ended up um, setting up computer accounting systems for small businesses because I had the experience with the technology side of things, but I also had the formal training in the accounting concepts. Yeah, and oh my gosh, so this just blows my mind hearing all of this because your journey, it, like to work with Steve Jobs and then to know that that techie spot wasn't really where you wanted to be and that's not how you were supposed to end up and then it drove you into the next category, which is the accounting part. Mm-hmm. And do you ever look back and just you're just in like awe, like this? not really, because you know when you're when it's your summer job and you're 21 years old, you don't think that it's going to be anything other right. than a summer job. Yep. You know, um, 
I did keep coming back every month and I did see the company start to develop and when he started to move into international markets he asked me to, to translate his German contracts for him because I spoke German fairly well at the time but not legally okay. so I said please get someone who understands German legal technology you know to to do this translation for you but anyway I saw the development of the company from the earliest days through his death in 2011 wow yeah including his segue into a couple of other entrepreneur um, endeavors kidding. and so when he did things like move into Pixar I got to see it through his eyes and and from his perspective yeah also setbacks like when he was ousted from the company yeah and when he came back and also his early thinking for example he was about I don't know six or seven years into Apple and I was visiting him at his home one day and I said well what are you guys doing these days and he goes we are working on a computer the size of a paperback book now, if you think about this, in 1983, or 1982, I guess, the Apple IIe was the size of a big bread box. Yeah. So the idea that you could have a computer the size of a paperback book was truly radical. Right. And I said, wow, how are we going to do that? He goes, well, we're starting to learn how to miniaturize things. And so um, he did. You know, he had that vision, what, almost 30 years before the the iPad came out. Yeah, because that's the first thing I thought of was iPad. Yeah. And I was like, I hope I hope it's the iPad that yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was the iPad. But first, you know, he it, what's interesting is Steve always recognized opportunities. And so for example, during those years we were all carrying around Walkman with yes, um, cassettes. Good old Walkman. Yeah. Yes. But they were cumbersome and you know you you the the tape would snarl and and they were heavy and yep. you know how did you go running with that and so he tried to figure out a way to get a thousand songs in your pocket so the first miniaturization of course was the ipod famous ipod and then he let someone else go through all the growing pains of the telephone before the iphone came out and then that morphed into the ipad so, but the, the vision for it, the idea for it was 30 years before that and they never forgot it and they just kept working toward it. And, and that's what I love uh, about that story and about entrepreneurship in general, running a business, is that you really have to think things through. You, you have to be passionate about something and, and understand that it doesn't happen overnight. It, it's years in the making and, and it can be very frustrating. And, there's going to be things that happen, both good and bad, through that pro uh, journey. But at the end of the day, you have to still be willing to keep moving forward yeah. and keep pivoting along the way. Right. Yeah. And he worked very, very hard, especially in the beginning. He was always a driven person. Um, so, yes, there was opportunity. Yes, there was a certain amount of luck involved. Um, yes, there was a lot of salesmanship involved, but there was a lot of work to I mean, really um, amazing. And the other thing I was admired him for was that he hired the best people. He wanted really smart people who would push back and not necessarily agree with him, although he usually got his way. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, it was a privilege. It was a privilege to see it, as I say, from his point of view. Because I decided early on I wanted to be his friend and not his employee. And I'm glad I made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, so, yeah, that's... And, and that's a huge decision to make because I know that even in, in my business and thinking of who I want to hire for my team and, and how I want to grow and everything, it's a lot to think about and when you are good friends with somebody and they're good at helping you, knowing what you want and what you know is going to be best for that relationship. Um, was it hard at the time to, to not say? Not really, not really. My life was going in a very different direction at the time that um, 
uh, Apple was starting. Yeah. And so it was easy for me to pursue that direction. And then by that point, um, we were on such different career paths that we just interfaced as friends over, you know, social events. Yeah. And so that, as I say, that was a privilege for me. I got to do a lot of fun things I wouldn't have done without such a famous friend. Oh, I'm sure. And so that led you into accounting. And where did you go from there? Uh, are you still well, there? Well, what happened was I was working um, in the financial district in San Francisco. And actually, I would see Steve uh, at, uh, as a result of that at odd times. I remember the accounting firm I was working for originally was at Gramercy Towers on Knob Hill, which is right near the Masonic Auditorium. Yeah. And Apple was having a big presentation there. And I knew they were there, so I went down and I said, hey, Steve, you want to see where I'm working? So I brought him to my little cubicle, you know, oh, and he goes, awesome. yeah, and he goes, yeah, okay, this is like our setup at Apple, and um, the one of the partners of the firm was there, and, she, and I introduced her, and she, her jaw just dropped. I mean, she, I didn't realize how, how famous he was. He was a yeah. friend, you know, and um, I was, I don't know. Kind of oblivious in a way. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what happened was I ended up leaving corporate accounting and leaving that because I became ill. And while I was recovering from my illness, I needed to make ends meet. So I started doing bookkeeping. And that's how I discovered that there was this huge gap between people who understood accounting principles and people who knew how to use computers. So I went to this, the, at that time the only place you could buy a computer was at a computer store. Yeah. So I went to all the local computer stores and I left my business cards and I told the owners, if anybody is buying a computer for business purposes and needs to know how to use accounting software and spreadsheets, I can teach them. I can set their systems up for them, I can teach their staff or I can do it for them. Wow. So that was a right place, right time. And by the time I had that going, I was doing so well that I decided not to complete my certification as a CPA and instead to just go with my own business and I've done it for 35 years. Okay, so that gives me chills because I love that story. So you basically worked off of referrals, word of mouth marketing, which is still number one and it cost you zero dollars. Business cards. Yeah, yeah, Th yeah. Which are now like ten bucks, if yeah. that. Um, and it's just going in, seeing the need, and going in and explaining, "This is how I can help you." Yes, exactly. And there was a lot of pain, a lot yes. of pain points for people at that point because even though we now glibly say user friendly, they weren't. I had to learn how to use 50 different kinds of computer accounting software. Oh, no kidding. Um, through my career. Yes, because everyone had a different widget, you know. Uh, yep. Now, fortunately, if you can think like a 12th century monk, you've got it made. Yeah. That's where accounting principles come from. This is a fun story, and I'm going to segue yeah. for just a yeah, second. Yeah, no, please, yeah. The only numerate and literate people in society back in the Middle Ages were the clergy. They learned to write and they learned their, yeah, how to do simple math. This brilliant mathematician who was, I think his name was Bertolini, but don't quote me, yeah. um, came up with the double entry general ledger system because he had so many novices going through the scriptorium. He needed to figure out a way to find errors. So for every debit, there's a credit. Yep. And it is a kind of algebra, you know. Oh, big time. You just have those long, um, you know, multiple factor equations going on. And if you can think like that, then you've got it made with the counting. And I had that down. Yeah. So when I saw the logic of these various programs, I, I wasn't afraid to say, okay, let's, let's try this. This is probably what they intended. Some programmers are more elegant than others. So, yes. of course, I had my favorite programs early on, but in any event, it was a way for the client to present highly um, condensed data to a CPA and not have to pay CPA rates for them to do bookkeeping. Oh, interesting. And also, they could get timely reports and understand what was happening with their own business. Huge. Faster with a computer. Yeah. Instead of, because when I started, it was red and black ink. 
in paper ledgers. I'm not kidding. Oh, man. Yeah, and even the hand crank calculators. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. In fact, one of my colleagues used an abacus. She was from Japan. So, anyway, I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm a dinosaur, no, but I'm no, a no. dinosaur. And it's fascinating because I'm the techie, right? And I love all of the tech that we have available to us and how easy it is these days. And even though it, we can struggle with it, it's still easier than it was back then and so to hear how things have evolved and how things just come together over time is is so important because we do we have to look at our history in order to know where we're going and what we're doing mm -hmm. you know and the whole time you're talking about accounting I'm thinking I'm really glad that I have my QuickBooks yeah. and that it for the most part just works and I don't have to think too much even though it's so complicated and there's so many things that could go on in there I'm using just the bare basics and I'm just like, I can put in my receipts and I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and, and they really have improved the software so that it is much more user friendly now. And part of the privilege of being able to do the work that I've done for as many years as I've done it yeah. is to meet the entrepreneurs who do the work. Oh, I mean, it's yes. great. It's like seeing, seeing the ultimate startup in the garage and knowing that you could really take this to, to stratospheric heights makes me realize, you know, that these people that I'm working with, they have this amazing ability to create their own prosperity, to live life on their own terms, to do wonderful work in the world, to make a contribution. And I've always taken that perspective with my clients, and I've, I've had the privilege of working with so many amazing, hundreds and hundreds of wonderful small businesses. And um, I'm, I'm supposed to be giving a presentation to my colleagues in another interest that I have, yeah. which is narration and voice acting. I've started doing that in recent years. But because of my business background, they asked me to give them business presentations. I was doing some research recently and what I learned kind of fascinated me. The most recent data that we have is 2016. But um, I didn't realize that American business is overwhelmingly small business. 99% is businesses of 500 or fewer employees. Oh, wow. I had no idea. And of that, most of them are solopreneurs and 15 or fewer. Okay. And that's been my client base, um, 15 or fewer employees and sales of one and a half million approximately per year. Okay. So um, what I find fascinating about that is even though half of those businesses fail within five years and we're down to a third of those businesses in 10 years, the ones that succeed, um, there's some common denominators there. And I've had the privilege of working with those people over decades yeah. and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And any that come to the top of mind? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I would say is what you've already said is recognizing an opportunity yep. and making sure that um, you're addressing your customer's pain points. Big one. You know? Yeah. And just being persistent because things don't happen immediately. Sometimes your computer the size of a paperback book takes a while to develop. Right. Well, and that's the thing, too. And, uh, you know, tying back in what, where we met at the workshop, what um, Steve had mentioned about, Stephen had mentioned about the uh, book that he wrote, that gave me chills. The fact that he had wrote um, that Windows 97 book, and when he was telling us that he wrote it, he basically had a solid offer, 600000 it was going to be made for life, and it was great. And then all of a sudden, the publisher got bought out, and the book sold maybe 18 copies, and it was a total failure in a way, but it wasn't because it led, several years later, to him getting the teaching job he needed and getting his uh, master's, I think it was, right? and also his daughter's tuition paid for. Like, it took years for that to happen, but he was the only one qualified because the class was built off of his book. Yes. And that story, I've told so many people about that story because, you know, I'm in this online space where everyone's creating courses, digital books, paperback books. Uh, you know, everyone's creating something, and they 
expect it to sell out and that it's going to be number one, you know, on the best sellers list overnight. And when that doesn't happen, it's very depressing and because there's so much pressure and there's so much money that's being spent in hopes that it's coming back. And, and so when I see that happen to people, I just think, I really hope that they understand that that wasn't necessarily the end point for them, that that could be just the start. And if they carry on with it, just like he did, where it was the foundation that set everything up. And that's why I always tell people, especially clients and other entrepreneurs, we have to pause and look back at what we've done. Because we constantly are trying to check things off our to-do list. We're constantly um, paying attention to the calendar and what's coming up and did I get this done? And okay, it's done and it's off my plate. And then it's like, but wait, did we get time to appreciate the work we did? Yes. Did we get time to uh, celebrate and, and embrace that moment that we had a launch party, that we did create a book? Um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but my first business was a magazine. And it was when I was in college. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be the first in my family to graduate college. And uh, I, I was just glad I made it through high school. <laughs> I didn't even know if the college thing was going to work out. Um, so I went to the junior college and I got into photography and photojournalism. And funny enough, when I looked back, my senior project in high school was on photojournalism. But I didn't remember that until three years prior, or past, whatever. Um, so when I was at the four-year college, Sonoma State, uh, I was, I think it was my junior year, I was being, a, I was a photo editor on the newspaper and doing all the stories and just having fun and my dream was to work for Men's Health. Well, Men's Health is in New York and I'm here in California and I was like, well, I got friends, family and the whole setup here and I really don't want to pack up and move to New York because it's going to be expensive and I don't really want to be out there by myself. So I thought, and I still remember, I was sitting in the at Sonoma State in my office and looking out the window and I said, I'm going to start a magazine here. <laughs> and I picked up a magazine, or a book from NOLO. Um, yes, do you familiar NOLO, NOLO Press, yes. yes. Excellent advice for anybody looking for legal advice about business. Yeah, and they just have fascinating books. So I picked up one on how to start a newsletter and magazine. And I sat in my backyard and I was flipping through it one night and I said, yeah, I could do this. <laughs> and I kid you not, while finishing up college, working anywhere from two to four part-time jobs, um, one of which was a photo intern at a local magazine at the time, Make Magazine, uh, I started Mix It Up Magazine. And it was a lifestyle magazine. I ran it for two years. I made sure that it was in print. The first two issues were fully printed and I went through the whole process. Even though everyone was like, print's dying, it's too expensive, don't worry about it. I said, no, everyone can, anyone can create a magazine online. I need to go through the process of having that tangible product because that's real. And, and you know, this is back in 20, 2007, I think, 2008. And so I went through and went through the whole process. All four issues are online. And you know that's my archives where I can look back and actually publicly anybody can look at them but it was such an awesome journey and, and some may look at it from the financial side well it didn't make any money so it, it wasn't a success right but that's where we have to ask ourselves as entrepreneurs what does success look like for us for me it was doing the work and getting that experience and I for the first time was able to do a business travel to go meet people. I was able to not only take the ideas that I had and put them on paper, I had a designer bring them to life. I had an editor. I had a magazine that I went to pick up at the printing press to have as a box. I even got um, people, uh, a band, Thriving Ivory, which at the time was number one on VH1. and. I got a hold of them through their manager, through MySpace, believe it or not, <laughs> before Facebook. And so, it, it, the, and it, we put on concerts and we got to meet people and it was fantastic. And so, did it make me any money? No. But I went into that knowing that that wasn't the goal. 
the goal was to be able to have the magazine and if I needed to work several part-time jobs as long as the magazine could sustain itself and wasn't too much out of my pocket. And after two years I had the experience and everything that I needed and I still remember saying to myself as I packed everything up in the box, I said, you know, I'm okay with closing this business right now. I can always pull it back out of the box and start it whenever I need to. And it led me to the next project where I, I met someone in New York. They were starting their fashion line. I was able to help with the marketing and I it, it just took me to a whole nother level and I was commuting between California and New York to help on building a, biz, a business through the fashion industry which I had no knowledge of beforehand. And so it always comes back to pausing and reflecting and understanding that we do these things, if we're passionate about them, we do these things that will lead us to the next thing. And we have to ask ourselves, what does success look like? And for me, it's that freedom, not necessarily financial freedom, of course, that, that's great if that happens, uh, but the freedom to be able to say, hey, should we go to lunch today? I have some time, or let's go on a trip. Okay, and, and being able to move my schedule around and make things work because that to me is success and being able to still do what you love. Well, you've just said a mouthful because <laughs> I think part of what happens with people who start their own business is their business runs them. Yes. And what can end up happening is that you are working a job instead of owning a business. And that work-life balance thing, especially if you make it past that 10-year mark, um, you're, you're going to have some habits that are probably going to be busyness yep. and not business. And it takes a certain amount of perspective to stand back from that and say, okay, what do I need to do to correct course here? And that's what I would say in following up on your previous question to me is yep. what, are, what are some of the things that worked and the things that didn't work? I think the thing I've noticed about the businesses that go out of business yeah. is that they will recognize a problem and think, if I keep doing what I've always done, I'll get the result that I want. Right. And they won't make a course correction. They just won't. And at it's really important to have some very um, measurable benchmarks with your business. It could be um, your sales numbers, it could be the number of customers that you've contacted, it could be the number of chargeable hours in a day, it depends on what your business is. Sure. But you have to have those kinds of firm benchmarks and you have to be looking at them. And if you're not reaching your goals, you have to assess what could it be. I'll give you an example. Yeah. We have a common history. I didn't realize this until you shared your story. But I also ran a publication. Oh, I had cool. a newspaper. Oh. And um, this was what happened. I mentioned that I was recovering from an illness. Well, yeah. I started the computer accounting business to make ends meet. But after a few years, I felt that the creative side of my personality wasn't really being satisfied by that. So I was still recovering and I needed an activity that allowed me to regain fine motor skills in my hands. I was coming from physical therapy one day and I stopped in a pool room to play pool. Yeah. Because I thought I would stand at the table and play for hours longer than I would if I was lifting little weights or something like that. Well, it ended up being a brilliant solution for my medical needs, but it also exposed me to a whole world of this sport that I had always been interested in but didn't know much about. Flash forward a few years, I ended up writing for magazines and newspapers around the world on the topic of pool, snooker, and billiards. Oh, wow. Editors sent me to cover tournaments and do player profiles and room reviews and equipment. Um, uh, st stories and all kinds of things and I thought okay Northern California needs its own voice and yeah. I started a, a newspaper called Q Sports Journal it came out every month I got all the advertising I also oh, went and picked it up from the printer yes. you know the smell of that newsprint and yep. all of that and so one of the things I learned from that was that you have to know when to hold them, 
Yes. And know when to fold them and know when to walk away, know when to run. Yep. I had a partner in that business who was not pulling his weight. He was a salesman. He would talk me out of it every time. And finally, at one point, I said, um, I simply cannot continue to do this. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's important to have a failure in your past. Yeah. Whether it's that you hire John Scully and he kicks you out of Apple Computer right. and you keep one share of stock, you know, and then and then you come back as the interim CEO, the ICEO, right. which is where all those I's come from, iPod, iPad. I don't think iPhone. I knew that. Yeah, it means interim. Because all of them were prototypes, all of them were startups. Anyway, my point is, um, you need a big failure because, first of all, if you only have successes, you tend to think you're invincible and yeah. you just, you know, um, you can fly too close to the sun and your, the wax on your wings is going to melt. Yep. Um, but also, it helps you to course correct. It helps you to recognize course correction is really important. Oh, big time. And, and that was why I stopped the magazine. And it was a hard decision because that was my first business. And, and it is... When you're passionate about it, it's it's your baby, and and it's very hard to say, no, I gotta stop, but because you're thinking, oh, it's just one more, it's right around the corner, because it, it can be very hard to determine what that line is, because you know everyone's saying, oh, you gotta keep going, keep going, but you have to assess and you have to look at what's working and what's not, and and can you can you pivot, can you make those course corrections, and I think that it's challenging for everyone. I think that. For entrepreneurs who are starting an online business, it may, depending on their business and the person, of course, may be a little easier for them to make those pivots given they're jumping in and it's right online. Um, a little easier for them compared to uh, brick and mortar, especially if they've been in business for 10, 20, 30 plus years. It's well, even right off the bat, because you a brick and mortar, you have to sign a lease. Yes. And you are having those utilities. And you, I mean, not that where you live, you don't have these things, but right. the point is you can still live there yep. if you decide that your online business is not going to work. So you're absolutely right. It is a little more nimble, but it also, because there are fewer barriers to entry, you tend to have a lot of chatter around you. Yes. So unless you're providing something of value, to people and getting their attention, then you're going to have the struggle of getting their attention. Yeah, and, and that's the big one, especially online. Uh, huge right now because everyone's trying to get everyone's attention and it's like everyone's overwhelmed. And what do you do? And you know, I've talked to a couple local businesses that have brick and mortars, and it was interesting to me to learn that one of the number one questions I ask people, and I, I figured most businesses would be asking, especially if they've been in business for 10 years or longer, is how did you hear about us? Or how did you find out about us? And the local business owners I talked to, they don't know the answer to that question. As if they've never even asked that question. And it just blew my mind because I'm thinking, that's, that's kind of business 101, I would think. you know. And you don't have to have any sophisticated programs to do that you can literally have pen and paper or have your associate ask and so it was just it was interesting for me to learn that yes yes and it's so important to know that um, part of the reason I took the course where we met yeah was because it's a brave new world for me I mean my clients have prospered sold their businesses retired so I am now working with a whole new set of entrepreneurs which is very exciting for me yeah and they market differently. Um, I used to get most of my referrals from the Chamber of Commerce and the CPAs that I worked with and um, and from each other. Yeah. You know? But you've got this older group of business people who are retiring. Well, they're not cross-fertilizing, except with their kids now. Right. So, and, and that's a source of referrals for me. But as you said earlier, there's nothing like getting a recommendation from someone you know yeah. who says, oh, I have a great dentist, or, right. you know, uh, here's the lawyer that I worked with for this particular problem. I mean, especially if it's a personal service business, you're always looking for that kind of thing. 
Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, that I've noticed just across industries is that we're in this time where we're so connected, but we're also not. And we utilize some of our technology, but not all of it. And there's a lot of people moving out of the workforce in terms of retirement and, you know, just they're getting out of the business. And it's that time where it's like, okay, where's that new generation that's coming in? And are we making sure that we're training each other, right? You know, uh, the more seasoned generation might be leaving or are, are struggling to pivot with the technology. So they need to be taught how to use the, the tools and how to market differently. Um, where the younger generation might be using the tools but don't really know the business stuff. And so, it, I don't know, it just it seems interesting that we kind of have both of these worlds going on and the crossover is not quite there yet. I agree, I agree. It, it kind of surprises me that there isn't more you know, hand-holding. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of, of dependency, I mean right. in the sense of a handshake. Yeah. I can help you, you can help me. Um, because we have something to contribute to each other. Oh, definitely. It's interesting generational things too, just going back to Steve Jobs for a moment. Yeah. One of the things I noticed um, as his career progressed, he accomplished a lot of the things that he had intended to accomplish. Um, I heard a story though, I didn't hear this directly from him, but I heard it through the grapevine from mutual friends. When he would go through a fallow period, he would take time off, like six months to think. Yes. Now most of us don't have that luxury. luxury, yeah. But certain kinds of life events also suggest ways that we can refresh our careers. For example, when he had young children, one of the things that he noticed was that the stories that they were hearing through popular entertainment, he felt um, weren't really addressing the needs of their lives as, as modern people. Yeah. And that was part of the reason he got involved with Pixar, because he wanted to be able to influence the stories that were told. And if you look at the first story, the Toy Story, um, I, w I had the privilege of going to the uh, opening of Toy Story. It was a black tie event, men in tuxedos, women in gowns. It was a, a fundraiser for Toys for Tots. Oh, cool. So we were all supposed to bring a toy to contribute. and. The engineers, um, software programmers, all of the people, the creative people who worked on the project were there in the audience. What was, just a quick segue, what was yeah. funny for me too is they would laugh at parts I didn't understand and I asked afterwards, why did you laugh when they showed the library in the child's room and they said, they're all programming manuals. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, it's just this flash on the screen and you don't see it, but anyway. Um, there he was, starting to work with John Lasseter through Pixar with Disney, and he wanted to tell different stories. So Toy Story is about two people who are thrown together who are very different and have to find a way to get along. Yes. You know? How often does that happen in our work life? Right. With our neighbors, you know, in, in all kinds of situations in our lives, whether we have an in-law that, you know, <laughs> we're trying to get along with or, or, you know, all kinds of circumstances in our lives. And so he felt that was a story that needed to be told. And I think it's interesting, you know, that obviously he had a level of privilege and flexibility that most of us don't have right. but it's inspiring to look at it because we can go is there a way in my life that I can use my creative interest and my observation about the life I'm living and the people that are important to me to be a benefit you know to do something that's useful and possibly even put some money in my pocket yes no and I love that you bring that up because I talk about that a lot uh, with people that I in interact with is that we have to take breaks a and I tell people that because I have to tell myself too and thankfully you know I have a very good relationship with my parents and, and my mom is always reminding me take a break make sure you take a break and at, in the beginning stages it was kind of annoying because like okay mom I got work to do like let me just do it but I appreciate it the older I get too because not everyone has that voice of reason. Not everyone has somebody who's watching their their health and making sure that they're getting that rest. And as we learned in the workshop, 
when we actually go to sleep is when our brain actually connects the dots. And uh, because all day long it's trying to keep up with what we're consuming. And so that sleep is so important for many reasons, but that was fascinating to learn. And for me, I remind people that we have to take breaks and you know, working from home, because I don't have an office, working from home, it can be very challenging because you're working in the space that you live and you got the dishes, you got the dog, some have kids, some have uh, significant others and family, friends, all these things. And in the beginning, I had to really schedule out my day just schedule it out on a spreadsheet. Everything from the minute I woke up to the minute I went to bed, take the dogs out, snack, lunch. And that really helped. And what I did do also on there was go for a walk. And, and thankfully I have dogs, so that does help motivate me. But I realized that at least for me, and what I suggest to others is you have to go for at least 10 minutes on a walk. Because even though you switched uh, environments you've gone away from the computer uh, that first five to ten minutes your brain's still processing everything so you're still struggling with what you were doing in front of the computer and then when I hit that 10 11 12 minute mark that's when I started to actually breathe and feel at peace and so I love that you bring that up about Steve having that six months because we may not all have that luxury however we can even if we don't think we have time. We do have time, we can make time to have those moments throughout the day. Or maybe we just take an hour off during the day. Or we do have to lock ourselves in uh, the bathroom for an hour or, or two days or whatever. You know, there's so many different scenarios. You can go to a hotel or stay at a friend's house or Airbnb now. And there's all these things that we can do. We just have to mentally prepare ourselves and shift our mindset to do it. Yes, absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. And, and two things I want to touch back on. First of all, um, one of the first things I always say with regard to business advice is if you want to succeed in business, you have to get control of your calendar and your clock. Yes. You do. Um, it's just part of the job. I mean, you're working for yourself, but it's a job. Yes. So you need to be that disciplined. And then the second thing I wanted to comment on is walking. One of the things that happens when you walk is you swing your left leg and your right arm. You swing your left arm and your right leg. And what's happening is you're actually cross-connecting in your brain across oh. the two hemispheres of the brain. And part of what happens there is you really are in an integration process. Yeah. And so, yes, you get the benefit of the aerobics if you go for long enough, but you also get that integration that happens. That is so cool. I know. It is cool. I learned that, by the way, this is one of my secret weapons for entrepreneurs. It's called 100 Ways to Motivate Yourself. It's by a man named Steve Chandler. And it's um, that's one of his uh, tips is walking yeah and I agree I think that it's just um, I'm so glad that I have a dog who wants to go out four times a day because it helps me yeah it really does it resets whatever um, frustration might be happening but it also it just kind of cross fertilizes yeah and I'm gonna have to check that out because I, I'm like I absorb every book that I can get my hands on which is funny because growing up I did not like books. Magazines, sure, because of the pictures and everything, but I didn't like to read. And I could count probably on one hand, maybe two, the books I actually read from front to back. And I mean, I even was on Hooked on Phonics, believe it or not. And I hated doing that. But comes uh, come to find out, I love business books, marketing books, advertising books. Those are all fascinating to me. And I can sit there and read those from front to back and just take notes all day long and never get bored. It's just, you have to find what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. Well, and some of them are, are written very concisely too, which I yes. appreciate, is if someone will not talk down to me, but assume that I'm starting from a perspective of this is my area of interest, I do have a little bit of experience, here's what might help. Yeah, and what I've really enjoyed through the different books that I have because I, I sometimes get a huge stack and then I have to like quickly go through them, is the different writing styles. For instance, the most recent one 
that I found, believe it or not, it's called Brew Dogs. And I found this book at Office Depot. I would never think to buy a book at Office Depot. It was in the bargain bin right before the checkout. One of two books. I bought both of the books because there was another one in there and they were both business related. Um, Four dollars. And I am fascinated with it because it's all about Brew Dogs is uh, a game changer for the um, beer business in the UK. And they talk about their business, but they, the way they write about it and the way that they discuss how you know you have to be passionate about it, but you have to have something that that starts a revolution and not to um, you know copy what's out there, but to do your own thing and to get people inspired and they're a part of the revolution and it's just interesting how they wrote it because you're reading it and you're getting the business advice, you're learning about it, and you're learning about their company, and you just feel a part of it. Right. You know? Because the story makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Presenting abstract concepts doesn't make as much sense, and we don't remember it as well. Right. As hearing a story. Yeah. I found a weird one like that a few years ago that I, ha I just was golden advice on so many levels. It was called Build a Brand Like Trader Joe's. It was available on Kindle. Oh, I'm going to That was the only place that. that you could find it. And it was really shocking mm. advice. It was an advertising executive from Southern California who moved to the Midwest and went to work for Trader Joe's as a stocking clerk. And the reason he did it was because he needed health insurance. And he wanted a big break from, you know, the fast-paced um, marketing lifestyle that he had. Sure. But because he had the marketing background, he was looking to see why is this obscure company so successful? They never advertise. Right. And, you know, they, they're privately held mm -hmm. by a German uh, company. And, you know, it, it goes into all the details of how Trader Joe's does what they do. And I was just fascinated by it. So I'm with you. I mean, not that I read the business books right. exclusively, but this, oh, here's a fun story. Yeah. That same conversation about we're going to make a computer the size of a paperback book as we were putting yeah. company. He said, how are you liking working in um, the financial district in San Francisco? And I said, wow, I'm, I'm learning things I never thought I would learn. I'm, you know, doing things that um, I just never thought I would do. And he said, business is the best kept secret. It is so much fun. Thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Dive deeper into the conversation with this guest as well as others by going to yestoentrepreneurship.com forward slash podcast. Over there, you will find a list of all the previous episodes. And I hope that you'll continue to share out this podcast. And please be sure to leave a review in iTunes so that way others can discover this show and be able to realize they are not alone and that they have somebody they can count on to provide value and motivate and inspire them to keep moving forward. Together, we can make it happen. And like I always say, teamwork equals success. So go out there and do something great because why not?